back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, and it's great to have you here. The podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Check those guys out. Kyle and Kellen Cots have a trapping supply company out of Savannah, Illinois. They got a lot of stuff, baits, lures, urines, books, DVDs, everything you need to get started trapping. And uh, they get a bonus a rewards program. You can earn points every time you order. Go to cotsbros.com and check it out. Uh, it's easy to browse through and shop for different items. My favorite way is to use the search bar. If I'm looking for something in particular, just get over to that search bar and type in what I want, and it comes up with a number of results, uh, what they have in inventory uh, based on what I search for. So it's a great way to get the supplies that you're looking for and uh, and great prices, great service. I uh, can't say enough good about those guys. So support the guys who support the podcast. The podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction. That's where the world comes to buy wild fur. FHA is run by trappers for trappers. Uh, folks at the auction house understand the ups and downs of running a trap line, the amount of work involved in preparing quality pelts, and the importance each and every pelt has uh, that comes through their doors. Fur Harvesters is located in North Bay, Ontario, but they're not just a Canadian auction company. They take fur from all over the United States. They have uh, receiving depots throughout the U.S. and Canada, so it's easy to get your fur to the auction. They hold uh, two to three auctions every year, and uh, recently they've been holding that auction in Helsinki, Finland, which has helped uh, get fur to the Russian buyers and uh, get better prices for the furs. So these guys are trapper-owned, uh, trapper-employed uh, company. That they they really know what goes on in the trapping world, and and their trappers that have their fur in the same auction that we do, uh, they want to get the best value for the fur, and they're working hard to do that. You can learn more about fur harvesters at furharvesters.com. Uh, get information on past auction results so you can see what prices uh, were in the past. You can look into instructions on how to ship your fur, find a list of receiving agents and how to contact them, learn more about upcoming auctions, and a wide variety of other things. You can also call them at area code 705-495-4688. So check out Fur Harvesters. Um, And Kyle and I talked in tonight's episode about uh, selling fur and where, where different people sell their fur. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's country buyers, sometimes it's uh, regional buyers, sometimes it's the auction companies. I really think you have to hedge your bets and market your fur from in a wide variety of different avenues to try and see what works best for you. So uh, I'd appreciate if you try out Fur Harvesters, support the guys, and thank them for supporting the podcast. So in tonight's episode, I have an interview with Kyle Cotts from Cotts Brothers Lures, and I think we're going to have a few episodes coming up with Kyle. We, uh, If you remember a while back, we talked with Kyle about uh, KBL business and a variety of different things that he does there, but we never got the opportunity to talk about his actual trapping experiences. So I wanted to talk about trapping uh, out of state and the different uh, lines that he ran in different states. And it was that was the intention of the episode when we started, but there's just so much to talk about that we never got out of Iowa. So uh, this episode we talk about 
long line trapping in, in Iowa, primarily road trapping for raccoon and mink. And uh, it's a great episode. Kyle shares a lot of insights and thoughts and, and memories from uh, his trapping years in Iowa. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Thanks again for tuning in, and uh, let's get into the interview. Kyle Kotz, got you back. Um, it was great to have you on last time. Uh, I guess uh, maybe a month ago, we talked a lot about the business of trapping, and we had a lot of fun, but didn't get a chance to go into more of your personal trapping and, and trapping stories. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that. We kind of left it after we talked. I, I know Kellen and I sat around here for days and just reminisced about New Mexico and different experiences and and different trap lines. So I kind of, kind of, it, it's something that you know, sit down and talk. You, the more stories you tell, the the more that come to mind, and it's just hard to fit it all in one conversation. <laughs> I guess. Do you? Uh, can you remember all the different places you've trapped? Oh yeah, yeah. I I can kind of run through that. I I started I started of course here in Illinois and and like all through high school. My 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 main focus was was I wanted to get out of high school and I, I wanted to go to Iowa and, and trap raccoons and um so that that was like my my goal and I I graduated high school early and I I went to Iowa. That was the first out of state experience I had and and then. Uh, Mississippi was the next venture, uh, and then New Mexico and Maryland and Maine, uh, Minnesota, and then down to Alabama. Wow, <laughs> so that 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 covers the states I've I've trapped in, and I've I've spent time with other people um, on trap lines in Arizona and Indiana, uh, Wisconsin. Um, think that I'm trying to go through my head here a little bit that yeah I vis- visited people in those states too uh in Missouri also uh but uh so I, I guess I kind of made the rounds a little bit <laughs> yeah you've covered a wide variety of geographical area and probably different trap line conditions oh yeah yep yep <laughs> so so Iowa comes to mind at first because it, when I when I think Iowa I think of uh, road trapping state. Everybody talks about you can trap in the mm-hmm. road right away, so people like to long line there. And I think mm-hmm. about coons. So that's what you yep. were you were doing there. Yeah, I, I, my my goal was I, I figured you know I I started going to conventions and stuff. I, I started meeting a lot of Iowa trappers, and I guess I kind of sought out those guys that were long line coon trapping and trapping roadsides primarily because I. I was afraid to talk to people, so getting permission, and I mean, even to this day, I would say, um, I would say 98% of the, well, maybe not that much, but, but probably at least 80% of the fur I have caught in the course of my trapping career has been on public land. And um, so I was drawn to Iowa because I could trap the roadsides and not have to get permission. Um, so that, that led me to seek out different people and I, I got to a few few guys come to mind uh rick hemseth dave pluger uh mark Holub. uh there, there was a, a lot of them that i uh, i got to know um and i started kind of developing my system in my head and then i went to iowa the first year and it was a major disaster <laughs> um, everything that could go wrong went wrong and i 
I think I caught 29 coon and ended up pulling my traps after uh, about five days. I, I, I can't remember now. I'd have to look back at my notes. Like four or five days, maybe it was even a week. But um, I the brakes went out of my truck, and it was just I was kind of forced to stop because of the truck problems. And um, my grandpa was with me. Uh, grandpa would have been, let's see, uh, about that was ninety seven, the fall of ninety seven. So my my grandpa was born in twenty two. So he was seventy five years old. So he would wake up at two thirty in the morning with me, and and was there through all that. And I, at the time, it was like this huge life disaster. I felt like I failed. And now when I look back to it. Um, grandpa's not here. I can think of those learning lessons in that time with grandpa and it's such a positive thing. It was kind of that first failure was kind of the foundation of, of success really, uh, uh, looking back on that, uh, that experience gave me a lot of knowledge and a lot of, um, experience that I was able to then be successful in other places under much worse conditions really um so that that was i i i don't think people always realize that uh especially now in current times in the trapping industry um you see a lot of big catch pictures and 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 marketing and people talk about how successful they've been yet so somewhere along the lines they probably had to fail to achieve that success and or, or or they've never really taken the risk to fail and really advance their knowledge but i i think of um conversations i had with guys like slim peterson that have trapped a lot more places than i have or jim comstock that that spent a lot of the 80s traveling and everybody would tell you they had a miserable failure at some point um, and I was kind of fortunate in that I got that one out of the way <laughs> right away. Yep. Um, I did have, I mean, I've had other failures along the way and, and for different reasons. Um, sometimes you get to a place and, and they're like Maine comes to mind, you know, you get there and it's like the conditions just aren't right. Not a lot of sign, not a lot of animals. I look back at that and it's like, man, if I could have been moose hunting instead of trapping, it would have been a great, a great success. <laughs> Plenty of sign trip. of moose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and, and by the same token, if I had gone there to moose hunt, I would have found coyote tracks every time <laughs> I stepped out of the truck. It just, it always works that way. If I, if I, if I go to hunt, I find tremendous, uh, uh, potential to trap different animals and if i'm trapping i see monster bucks and moose and everything else <laughs> so iowa was a short trip but a, a big learning experience did did you ever go back oh yeah i i trapped iowa um well now where i live i'm just uh right on the mississippi river so i can sleep in my own bed and trap iowa i haven't mm -hmm. trapped iowa now for for quite a few years but um i think i've trapped iowa Oh, on and off, not consecutively, but on and off uh, about 12 different years, maybe. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in Iowa. And I mean, of all the places I've, I've trapped, I've, I've caught more fur in Iowa than I have in my home state of Illinois. Uh, I, I just, the, the bulk of my trap line hours were, have been spent in Iowa. Okay. So that, that first year uh, was kind of a disaster. And then when, when you came back, 
uh, how did how did your second trip to Iowa go? Did you did you do another long line? Did you try and build off of what you had learned the first trip? Well, one of the things I, I after that first failure, um, I remember there was a, a guy that he was writing a lot of articles and a fairly well known trapper. I'm going to leave his name out of this story. And I remember him at a convention saying, hey, you should come take instruction from me for a couple of days. It, I'd give you a, a, a normally charge $500 a day, but you could come for the weekend for $800. And I thought, you know what? A light bulb just went off. And, and in reality, the $800, I could have spent $800 and took that online instruction. But I started thinking to myself, no, what I need to do is put the money into gas and just drive and <laughs> yeah. get my map out and start looking at bridges. And and so going into that second year, I anytime I had free time or had a little bit of gas money, at the time I was living still at home with my parents. I was 19 years old. or I, Actually, I guess I was, I was yeah, I, I would have been 18 at the time. Um, I would come over the family our family had a cabin over here where I live now on this property. So I could stay at the cabin just a couple miles from Iowa. So I would come over in the summer, wake up early and just drive into Iowa with my map and just start making notes. This was pre internet, so to speak. So, I mean, now it would be much easier when you can have like Onyx maps on your, on your phone uh, and, and mark things on a GPS. So I was kind of old school in that I was, I was putting, I made copies of my atlas, uh, and I started putting dots on the map and numbering the dots, and I created this, basically started just creating this trap line. And it took some time. Um, and I forget that first year, I was primarily trapping, but that second year then, I was looking at like two counties. Mm-hmm. And then over the next couple years, that, that second year, I, I think I caught like 100 and... Oh, 44 coon or so off the road line. And then I, I trapped in around Illinois a little bit. And then that third year I, I trapped Iowa for 10 days and I had jumped up to like 182, 180, somewhere in the 180s. I, I don't have my notes in front oh, of me. That's, I mean, that's, that's quite that's a catch long. for 10 days. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I had, I started picking up more mink too. Okay. Um, and then that, that third year, after I pulled the road line, I went and trapped a river with Dave Pluger, which was like the best uh, experience ever. Dave, I, I still put Dave in a, a league of the very elite coon trappers. And I started figuring out, I, I've always said a raccoon, you know, don't overthink it. A raccoon is an animal that will break in your house and live in your attic. Right. You know, we're not talking about a coyote or a beaver that's been educated or something. You know, they're a very basic animal. However, when you're around a guy like Dave, you start to see that that sometimes, like just looking at location, um, the way he saw things, you know, he, he would pull his boat over and make a couple pocket sets on a bank. And those two sets would produce like 10 coon in the next uh, five checks. Like he'd have a double four, <laughs> four or five days in a row after making them two sets. And I was like, I would never have even thought to put two sets there. And Dave would be like, well, there's a cornfield up on the ridge. And this is where 
there's a, a you know there's a sandbar coming out so it's the easiest access to the river for the coon and it's all false i mean it's just covered in oak leaves and stuff which is another key you got an oak ridge there and he didn't necessarily need to see coon tracks or see a beat down trail he just knew that's where the coon's going to hit the river yeah and so that third year i started picking up on things like that um so then the next year after that, I think I caught like 200, I think it was like 220 some coon in eight days. Wow. And then the <laughs> How many sets year, were you running to, to catch that many coon? Um, right around 200, roughly. Mm-hmm. I, like I say, it's been so long and my notes have been long since buried and I haven't looked at them in a long time. But then the following year, that next year after that, I trapped for 12 days. I caught 416 coons in 30 minutes. Wow. So it was okay, just that so you just system. built, yeah, you built on yeah, it every year. In, in the main difference, um, one of the things that resulted in the 416 coon was a huge population. Yep. Uh, and weather was right. And I, I know other guys that that, that would have been, uh, 2001 because I, I was trapped 97 98 99 2000 2001 was that year that it just exploded and the big difference was the coon numbers and uh i i haven't seen anything quite like that since um after 2001 i my focus changed and i ended up going to New Mexico and to Maryland, and then I moved to Minnesota. So from 2001, I didn't come back to Iowa till 2007, the fall of 2007. And going into that year, it was a, a I, I was thinking I'm going to knock out 600 coon in about 16 to 20 days. That's a I common had, mistake that trappers make. Yeah, and <laughs> and I started I started scouting and and. At the time, I'd, I'd pre-stake traps, pre-dig pockets, and so you, I was spending a lot of time on the trap line before opening day, and that, that's the biggest key is is spending, you know, learning the area and scouting ahead of time, which I had the advantage of, even though Iowa is not my home state, I was kind of, it's kind of my home trap line after yep. I had moved here then in 2007. So I had a lot of time to spend over there. Whereas, you know, if you're going uh, 2,000 miles away someplace to trap, you don't always have the time to scout. You're kind of scouting as right. you're going. Yeah. But that's that a takes a lot of time. Whole nother, yeah, a whole other challenge of state hopping. So 2007 going into that season, I, I was really fired up and, and, scouting i started kind of thinking i don't know about this it just doesn't have the feel that 2001 did there was a, in them six years there was a lot of bridges i pulled up to that used to be old wooden rickety bridges with cornfields on four sides where the coon were just forced into the water under the bridge and and they had removed that bridge and put in a steel culvert and dredged out the creek and it was all rock and there was beans there instead of corn. And it was like, you look at that and it's like, I can't do nothing with this, really. There's no coon sign to speak of, and it's all rock on the public ground. So I started finding, first off in six years, my trap line had changed uh, just from human 
intervention. Uh, bridges were rebuilt. There were some houses built, different places. Um, and so things had changed. And so I decided, well, I'll expand. And I, I added like 26 stops on a, on a kind of a spur. I call it a, I call it the alphabet loop because I had all my stops numbered. And then at a certain point, I added, yeah, I I had (laughs) from between stop 58 and 59, I had 58 A, B, C, D, E all the way up to like X. So so I, 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 I added that. I should say, I started doing that in 2001. I added an alphabet loop. Then in 2007, I did that again. Um, so I I kind of made some adjustments thinking, well, I'll still have my best year. Well, like that year, opening day, I, I can't remember. There was some, I, I think we got rain, and, and there were some weather conditions. I don't remember. Again, I don't have my notes in front of me. But mo- Mother Nature came into play, and like the first night, I had like 30 cone. And nothing wrong with catching 30 coon, but I was really expecting I'm going to have like beat my old record and I, I'm going to jump out and have like 75, 80 coon that first night. Yeah. And so I struggled through, I ended up catching like 292 coon in like eight to 10 days in 2007. So I was, I was satisfied, but I, I, I also realized, man, this is, this is the coon numbers just were not there. Yeah, two, uh, May two thousand one looked pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and and so I remember, I remember when I one day when I was checking traps on that line, I was talking to my dad on the phone, and I said, the best part of this trap line is I have realized that what I accomplished in two thousand one, in those twelve days, I'm older now, my knees hurt, and the. <laughs> all the stars lined up that I probably will never be able to do that again. Um, I feel like now sitting here, I know a lot more about trapping coon. Um, in 2001, when I accomplished that, uh, the dog proof was just being invented. Um, so now I would have, I could use better tools, but I just don't know that the, the stars would line up to where you would have such a high coon population available and the competition would be at a, at a, I guess at kind of a low time to where I would have access to, to produce the coon like I did in those 12 days. And that's something that I guess uh, it took a while to kind of catch on. And now too, sitting here, you can look back at different things and throughout the places I've trapped and things that I've seen and say, man, that day or, you know, that circumstance or that location really was epic. Like that was as good as it gets. But at the time that I was, I was making those catches or, or checking those particular traps, I didn't realize how good they were. And like in high school, we had a a farm we trapped and I think we had uh, a spot there that that produced like like a, a, a location where we had like three sets. It produced like fourteen coyotes in in a month's time on that farm. And at the time, in high as a high schooler, I just took it for granted. I was like, man, I only caught fourteen. You know, we caught like seventeen coyotes that year. Fourteen of them at that one location. Right. 
And now, looking back, of all the places I trapped in Maine and New Mexico and Mississippi, it's rare to find that where a, a one specific location could produce those 14 coyotes. And so that's that's one thing I guess is like looking back over the years, um, you, as you're doing certain things, you kind of take it for granted. And then you realize as you gain more experience and you go different places, um, hey, that was really something special and I didn't realize it at the time. And that kind of leads me to where I'm at now. Um, where I live, you know, people ask me, I, I haven't, outside of Iowa, which I said is kind of like my, I'm right on the line of Iowa and Illinois, I really don't have the desire to go back to a lot of places I've been because I feel like the populations, the animals I have access to right here from my own house the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. And I, I really can appreciate the animal populations I have to work with right here. Not to mention, I'm just at a different stage. I, I don't want to sleep in the back of my truck anymore. I've proven those things to myself. So I kind of, I guess I kind of, like the past few years, I, I haven't even bought an Iowa license. I've just stayed right here in Illinois. Yeah. So going back to the Iowa uh, trapping, I'm curious about, uh, two things, uh, what the competition was like trapping off the roads there, and then uh, what kind of sets were you making uh, on, on those road lines? Um, what was the first question again? I didn't uh, The competition. Oh, competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that <clears throat> competition is, is, is very fierce at times in Iowa, and I, I think back to that second year I had started – the first year I just chopped one county. The second year I jumped into another county and I had a guy leave me a note. I was writing in the Fur Taker magazine at the time and I guess some different trappers had kind of start to start to, I, I started to have some name recognition and, and naturally yeah. they would look at your trap tags and see my name. And I had a spot where my trap kept getting snapped and snapped and snapped and I could tell it was a person doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of was hard headed. It's like, I'm not going to pull my trap. So finally, I, 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 one day I went down there and there was a Ziploc bag snapped in the jaws with a, with a, with a, with a note in the bag that said, a trapper of your caliber should know to stay out of the, uh, stay out of this area. You know, we've been trapping here for, for 20 years and all this. <laughs> and so that just kind of stuck with me. It was kind of like motivation. And, and I, I thought, you know what, I don't care like that year I caught the 416 coon, my attitude was the more traps I have stolen, that me, that tells me I am covering more ground and working harder if I'm getting more stolen. If I don't have any traps stolen in Iowa, it probably tells me I'm not really taking risks or pushing myself because I have found that, that, I think 99% of the trappers are, that I ran across in Iowa are super good people. I made a lot of friends, a lot of customers trapping in Iowa. Um, the guy that made, that actually wrote that note has become a friend. Good, that's good. <laughs> it, it, took, it took about 10 years before <laughs> I found out who actually wrote it, and we had mutual friends, or we had a mutual friend, and that mutual friend... Um, 
he would call me and he would call this other guy almost every day when we were trapping just to see how things were going. Mm -hmm. And um, his name was Dave Gerlock, and he was another really knowledgeable. He primarily focused on Mink and Iowa. And I got to really like Dave. I rode with him late season. Um, I had long since pulled my traps, but he would run bottom edge mink sets in a lot of the creeks and stuff that I trapped. So it's fascinating to basically ride my own trap line with Dave and <laughs> yeah. see him catching mink in one tens in January, yeah. uh, two months after I'd been there. And Dave ended up passing away. And um, then I this this guy that had wrote me the note, I'd saw him at a convention, and and we knew who each other were. We never really had a conversation, but Dave would always tell me what he was doing and. And Dave would tell that guy what I was doing. And after Dave passed away, I saw this guy at a convention. And I just walked up to him and, and we shook hands. And, and I said, you know, now that Dave's gone and he, it seemed like he always called one of us each day. I said, I feel like, I guess we just got to call each other now. And he laughed and we talked for like 30 minutes. Then. <laughs> and ever since then, we're not the best of friends or anything, but, but he's a customer. Every time I see he's somebody I look forward to talking to when he comes to the shop here, I see him at a, at a convention and um so i would say you know competition has brought me a lot more friends than than uh, i ever thought possible but it can also be really intimidating especially like that oh, first absolutely. year when i failed yeah. i was petrified if i was down in a creek and a and a farmer drove over the bridge <laughs> i thought oh my god you go hide under the, the bridge trap. it's gonna yeah it's gonna be gone and and then by by the time 2001 rolled around, I waved. I talked to the farm. Like 2001, I if I saw somebody else trapping, I stopped and talked to him. Yeah. Um. And and I kind of changed my whole approach. And I also I think, you know, I I started running into guys. I was uh, 180 miles away from home. And I would run into them at seven o'clock in the morning and they're like, holy geez, like what time did you start? <laughs> and so then I felt like I was pushing myself to a level where I was gaining the respect of the competition because they're like, holy cow, this guy is, is really pushing it. And so I felt like I used the competition to motivate me. Um, but I also realized competition doesn't totally play into your success. Ultimately, I feel like you have to develop a system. You have to put the work in ahead of time to build a big trap line. And what somebody else is doing, I mean, if you pull up to, a, the way I felt is if I pulled up to a bridge, I knew where I was going to make my sets. If I had planned on setting four traps there and I pull up to that bridge and somebody else had set two of them spots, I still set the other two. Now, if I pulled up, there was places where I would pull up to a bridge I had scouted and there were six or eight sets there and I looked at it and it's like, Not there is nowhere else I can set a trap. I just went on my way and didn't think twice about it. I just crossed that dot off the map basically. Um, because I didn't really have time to worry about what somebody else was doing. That one bridge was not going to play into my overall big picture success. Yeah. So competition, I, like I say, there's, we could have a whole podcast about competition. I think, I think we might have to have a podcast for each state. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, uh, ultimately, the competition just really wasn't something that I I chose to focus on. But I do know some trappers really get wrapped up in it. Now that to answer the second part of your question, with what sets was I using? Um, I tried to 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 use what I felt was the best set at that location. Um, now the bulk of it was pocket sets. Um, I did use some blind sets, um, like bridge wall type sets. Uh, I used a lot of snares and trails, 220s and trails. Um, I also, later on, I started, uh, started setting some more 110s at ditches that I knew I could pick up muskrats at, um, especially like by 2007 when the rats were bringing five to seven dollars and they were more valuable. Or my my 97 to 2001, I was selling muskrats for like 250. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't I was catching them as they showed up, but then in 2007 I started trying to pay attention to muskrat sign and and add some one tens in at certain bridges. Yeah. Um, so. I guess too. There were some years where I was really fired up about snaring, and there was also years where you had a, a huge amount of corn, and you could find trails just coming across the road from cornfield. Especially if there was standing corn, you could find trails where there was coon going from a cornfield into a timber that there wasn't even a creek there. So I would set snares in two twenties, and I also. I also had this thing where I thought I could pick up some bonus red fox if I set more snares, which didn't really. I, I think I snared one fox in my career along really? the way. So they, they weren't running <laughs> but, the coon trails then. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't. Again, I wasn't really setting snares for fox, but I, I, I. That's a whole other subject, I guess. So, so I tried to. I would say my focus was on pocket sets because that was, I knew I could also catch mink if I focused on pocket sets. And I tried to make, I tried to make all my pocket sets mink sets because in my mind, I know a lot of coon trappers that catch a tremendous amount of coon in pocket sets and rarely catch a mink because they're building a pocket set for a raccoon, they're setting too deep, they're not getting the trap tight into the hole. Um, so I started using a deeper, narrower pocket so that the mink would be forced across the trap as they worked the pocket. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, it's the coon, you're, you're catching just as many coon in that type of pocket as you would in a big pocket made specifically for coon. So that was a change that I kind of, by from 97 to 2001, I, I changed the way I made my pocket. I geared it more towards mink. Um, and I, I used 11s and one and a half coils both. I, I don't think it, it really matters. Uh, some guys are more comfortable with one than the other. Um, but ultimately I feel like, uh, sometimes we get too wrapped up in the gadgetry and not focus enough on eye covering ground and animal populations because, um, you know, whether you're driving a Chevy or a Ford or a Dodge or a Toyota is irrelevant to how many animals you catch. And I think sometimes the same can be said for traps, whether you're using a one and a half or an 11, we could have a, a, a whole nother podcast just debating that topic. And ultimately I don't think it really matters. Just use which one you're comfortable with. Um, and, and 
and get as many of them out at good locations as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, looking back, if, if, if the dog proof trap had been invented, I, I would have definitely had a lot of dog proof set in places where you had, uh, like, like creeks that basically runoffs in cornfields that were dry, that there mm-hmm. wasn't any water and there wasn't really a trail there, but you know, the coon would be following that, that dry wash would have been a great spot there there would have been you know i could have set i i probably could have caught another no oh, i could have increased my catch by probably 20 percent just because i was driving by spots that now could easily be set with a dog proof that i didn't have that tool available to me there during those years so you were primarily setting with your pocket sets your traps were usually underwater yeah, yeah, the bulk of them were, were in the water. And you're using using some kind of fish for bait, I'm guessing? Yeah, I, in those years I, I, I used a lot of lure, and I also was using, like this was, those years were like the development uh, or the start of the, like our black label coon bait. Okay. Um, at that time, I was using a lot of like chunks of fish, and I didn't like it because one of the problem well it was it worked you can catch a ton of coon on chunks of fish but it was kind of inconvenient i felt like it slowed me down and then i also felt like a lot of times you know if a blue heron walks by they'd pick that chunk of fish out of the pocket uh and so then i'd just have lure there and if it rains a lot of times the lure is going to wash off and so as time went on i like by 2001 I was using a lot of our black magic bait because I could smear it up on the inside of the pocket okay and it had a good odor so I could just use black magic and not have to use any lure with it and it was a lot quicker Um, and then two you know a lot of times if the coon destroys the pocket after the first catch I would just grab a wad of grass and ball it up and basically kick it in the bank with bait on it keep catching coon (laughs) so that was that was probably something that kind of i kind of evolved a little bit um with you know to nowadays like if i was going to to long line coon this fall in iowa i would not even carry any chunks of fish with me (laughs) yeah i mean it just it would it would it would slow me down so you're doing that in in your your sets down on the water, and then up up a high, you're basically we're looking for coon trails and setting setting mostly blind sets up on the high banks. Yeah, if a, a lot of the a lot of the you know a lot of times you you stop at a bridge and there would be you know good locations in the water, and then you'd have a high bank trail that you could easily set a snare to twenty on. But a lot of the trails I was trapping were kind of in between bridges where you'd have a big a big oak timber with standing corn and you could find these just burner trails going across the road or or underneath the road in the culvert uh-huh. and so I'd I'd stop and and set snares or 220s and and I also that I think it was it was not the year I caught the 416 but like the year before that or me somewhere in the middle of that of that first run of Iowa I was using a lot of snares but the problem is you know when you're trapping you're you're by law when outstretched your snare can't touch the fence and so some of this 
roads. So you couldn't like, set a trail that was going through a fence then. Right. Yeah, yeah, Underneath but you can't. You, yeah, you can't. You can't okay. set the snare in the fence. Yeah. Okay. But the public, the public land there, if especially on a Class B road, sometimes the fence is so close to the road that you'd set a snare, and then after one coon, the coon have it all burn out. The trail would be worn out. You couldn't really set another snare. Huh. So I started seeing like, man, it's way better to set a 220 here, have a dead coon, and then I can just re. I'm not really destroying the trail any. Yep. And so I started going more towards 220s then, especially in those situations where you had a narrow road ditch, um, so that I wouldn't burn out the trail. And then also, I started. I was a little more bold side set um, roads that were like. Um, uh, uh, one of them that comes to mind is 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 US 30, which runs basically all across the United States. And I had trapped right along 30, which where I was trapping it, it's just a two-lane highway, but you still got a, ton, a tremendous amount of oh, traffic yeah. on that road. And, and how far so off I can did, you go from the road? What's the right-of-way distance? Um, like on a highway like that, you could pull off in the gravel, and then there would be grass, and sometimes you'd have 20 feet between, you know, 20 feet from the road to where the private land was um, that you could you could set. Um, so, so there's a distinction there that, like, how does the law distinguish that? Is it a set distance, or is it just like the bottom of the ditch or something? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure if it's changed. At the time, uh, I think it was different, like, class b roads that are not maintained you have a much narrower public uh roadside ditch there basically however unlike the highways there's a bigger right-of-way there okay um so basically i don't know if it was defined but but most trappers in the way it was always explained to me in talking to conservation officers is you can go to the fence okay where basically um, where, the, it, where the public maintenance stops Kind of. Exactly, and, and that's what they said. If, there, if there's no fence, they always said stop where, like, where they stop basically where something. the yeah where the where the rainwater would run along the road and meet the creek. They said, you know, if there's if there's a ditch there, you know, that's public maintained, and once okay. you get past that, if there's no fence, consider that private. Okay, you know, if you, if you look up and there's a cornfield on the bank of the creek, you're on private property. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's common sense then. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like the regulations were pretty good for trapping. I mean, you could use uh, body grips and snares um, mm -hmm. outside of water, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. And you could get pretty creative. Uh, did you do anything yeah. like bucket sets up on the banks uh, with 220s or anything like that? I never I never did. Um, if, and I was – my – when road lining, running that big road line, I was like, I had the motto, I'm going to get in quick and get out. Yeah. And then I'm going to go do other things, trap other places. Um, where I think you could do good there um, late in the year, like after January 1st, there's snow on the ground. When you have some warm snaps, I think you could really catch a lot of late season coon with bucket or box type sets under bridges. I never, I was always doing other things. I never went back and did any of that. But the opportunities that I, I know um, in our last last time we talked on the podcast, we talked about Tim and Brent Swatsky. Yep. 
in Minnesota, and I know I've talked to Tim about it. There was a few years where they late season in Minnesota. Minnesota has very similar regulations to Iowa, where you can road trap and stuff. And, okay. and they, uh, I think they caught a tremendous amount of coon, like in late January during a warm snap, and just strictly ran two twenties. Huh. Um, and and I do know some guys in Iowa too that will would do that late. After the snow flies, uh, especially like I say, if you get a little warm snap, you can kind of go back through your trap line and, and catch a lot of coon that you probably didn't think were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and when you're saying those two twenties in the trails, did you have any tricks that you picked up on? How, did you have to try to camouflage them, or how how did that work? Um. That's a bit, I feel like at that time when I was setting all them two twenties, I was very naive. Um, I I would I would throw some grass on the springs and 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 it's weird. I think I think every situation is a little bit different. I have set some spots. I can think about like being in Mississippi and setting a two twenty in a trail on a pick cotton field or on the side of a fish pond levee where the grass is, you know, ankle tall and catching coon after coon after coon. And then you try to make that same set on an Iowa roadside and you can literally see the coon make a trail around your trap. <laughs> <laughs> so huh. I, I don't know if, if, if it just is the animals are different in certain situations, Nowadays, I generally try to pick spots where they're forced into a 220. Yeah. Um, a, a couple years ago, I caught, uh, I, I, I bought a dozen brand new Bridger 220s, and I set all of them just right here on my own property. And I felt like I, I didn't, I, I think I caught 37 coon or so. It was probably about 30. I caught some coon and dog proofs and stuff. I caught like 30 coon and then brand new dozen 220s. And I felt like I accomplished so much. And it was just, it was kind of something, I didn't have a lot of time, but I just wanted a 220 trap more or less. Yep. And I started noticing, like I felt like I had learned so much because almost every 220 I caught would catch a coon. And then... Sometimes if the coon, you know, scuffs up the ground or they roll and disturb things, you can move the 225 feet in the trail and go right back to catching them. <laughs> and I think that's something that is, is like camouflaging them is important under certain situations. But I think the guys I know that, that catch many hundreds of coon in 220s every year, they don't spend a lot of time camouflaging because they pick spots where the 220 kind of naturally fits yep. and is naturally camouflaged to where the coon can only go through that 220, whether it be, you know, the trail dips under a log or over a log or, you know, there's a, the way the, the grass is, there's clumps of grass, a stump, a fence post, a fence itself, uh, a culvert there's something there that just forces the coon through the 220. Um, if you have to spend more than about 30 seconds camouflaging the trap, I sometimes think you're probably putting the 220 in the wrong, wrong location. Okay. Um, that's, I've kind of come, that's kind of my theory now. Now, back when I, it, it's kind of funny because I catch less than 220. I probably am not producing as many coon in 220s now as I was like in 2000, 2001. 
But if I ha- if I knew then what I know now about trapping with two twenties, I'm sure instead of four hundred sixteen coon, I probably would have had four hundred forty coon that best year, just because I feel like I'm better at picking that spot where the coon is forced into the two twenty. Yeah. Um, instead of picking the spot where it's easy to set a two twenty. Sure. Yeah, every time that you saw that coon make a trail around your 220 was a, was one less coon to add to that 416. Exactly. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's one of the pro- when you're like high production, really going quick, you look out the window, oh, that 220 is still set, and you drive by it for two or three days, and then you go to pull it, and you see what, what actually happened is, oh, the coon are walking over there now. Um, and that... <laughs> That's one of the disadvantage. One of the disadvantages is when you're waking up at two thirty in the morning and you're just focused on like high numbers production. You do miss a lot of little things because you're super tired. Yeah. Um, I feel like the times where I've just trapped out of the canoe and ran twenty five sets uh, for a couple hours on those little mini trap lines, so to speak, I have learned so much more because first off, I'm really alert because I've slept good. Second of all, I'm not trying to pay a bill with the catch. So I'm not like focused on production. I'm just enjoying trapping. You start to notice so many things, um, that, that it makes you such a better trapper that you know then if you are going to try to produce numbers you have all this these little things in your head that you can employ as second nature um because you've already picked them up from from observing the same situation before yeah yeah and speaking of observing you you came across a lot of other people's sets at those uh roadside ditches and stuff uh were there things that you learned uh just from watching how other people set or or was it you know, seeing things that you were like, oh, why in the heck would somebody want to do this? You see a lot of why in the world would they do that? <laughs> but but the, the one thing I did see was I, I started seeing guys catch mink, and that's what brought me to that real narrow pocket. Like, that clicked immediately. Once I saw, I had caught, like, one mink, and the competition had caught, like, ten that I'd seen. <laughs> throughout the course of my trap line, I said, yeah. this has got to change. And from then on, I always seen more mink in my traps than I did in other guys' traps. Huh. So I felt like th- that would probably be the biggest thing I, I learned from others was was their um, keep that pocket narrow and force a mink to step on your trap pan. Um, the the uh, uh, you, you do see a lot of... of, of sets and stuff too where you can you can tell sometimes i got to where i could look at somebody's pocket set um or or look at the trap they were using or see how they picked their location and you can start to pick out the guys that are that are on your same level and then you also can see people that have relatively little experience um and i generally like i say the guys that were producing a lot I had a lot of respect for him. Those are the guys that, you know, if you set a bridge where, where that guy's got a set, he'd always kill the coon for you in your trap. Um, I, I had guys cover, cover, you know, a coon in a 220 kind of flop over on the road and they cover it up with some grass. Yeah. Um, in, in it, the guys that were, that were my competition that were catching hundreds of coon, always the ones I looked out for. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and like I say, a lot of those guys are friends, they're customers. I, you know, talk to them all the time now. Um, so I would say, yeah, I definitely, I definitely learned a lot, um, um, from seeing others. Um, but ultimately the thing I learned the most was, you know, cover a lot of ground. You know, I, I, I would find a guy's trap at a, in one county and then I'd be 80 miles away and I'd cross him again. <laughs> yeah. That's what stuck in my head. That guy knows what he's doing. That's yeah. he's producing a lot. Other guys you run into them on, you know, uh, just on one section basically because they're just trapping around their family's farm. Sure. Um, so that, I, I would say, you know, most guys that produce a lot in Iowa, their systems are very similar there's probably 80% of the things they do are the same. And then everybody's got their own little niches of how they like to do things. But, but when you're, you know, just talking about mass producing coon, um, they, there's a lot of similarities. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it is kind of interesting when you see one unique thing, it's like, it's like a trapper has his own signature. You know, you see that narrow pocket. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's for sure. So uh, you were testing them. You, you said you were doing some lure testing. Is that part of why you, you, it sounds like you kept a lot of notes and records as you were doing, running that line? Oh yeah. And, 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 you know, I look back at it too. And like, like for example, here a couple of years ago when I was trapping muskets on the river in my boat, I had the, I, I use a GPS. It's actually a, a you know, just what, uh, uh, can't, uh, I think it's Garmin. I can't, it doesn't matter. But anyways, it's got the depth finder on it in, in the GPS. And I basically, I don't even use the depth finder and I just use it as a GPS in my boat. And, you know, I pull up to a muskrat hut, I hit the button and it puts a number by that hut. And I put that on my notebook and how many traps I got there and where I go. And I look back and it's like, man, if I had used a GPS, if I had like now on with what we have, when I first was over there, my cell phone, like I kept it off. You know, you had a cell phone right. in your glove box as a case of an emergency. So I could call somebody. You couldn't do anything else. It was with like it. a dollar a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, whereas, whereas now, you know, the GPS technology oh. is so much more affordable that a lot of the notes and stuff I kept, I, I would only have to keep a fraction of them now because of the GPS, the mapping, all my notes on maps and, and, you know, snare by the snare 30 yards past the the second gate post and stuff like that. You don't have to make all them notes now. Um, as far as like lures and baits, some of them, I didn't necessarily keep track of, Hey, I had this bait at this set or this lure at this set. I was, I was generally, I would, I, if I had two sets at a bridge, I would probably put different smells at each of them. And then as my system got more advanced, I realized we're talking about a really basic animal here. I need to streamline things. Mm-hmm. And so then if I made four sets, they would probably all have the same smell there. Now, sometimes if I had, I, I started to learn more about, about certain locations uh, in certain bridges um, were better mink locations. And then I would maybe spend a little bit more time. Uh, I, I started, I started getting bored with catching raccoon, but in order to like 
pay some bills and stuff, I had to produce Coon. But my focus was changing more to Mink because there was, in that first five-year spell there, when I got to 2001, uh, catching the Mink were, was like what kept me going during the day. So I started paying more attention to the sets and the lures that were catching Mink. Yeah. And the coon I started caring less about. It was more of I was just looking at the big picture production of the coon and kind of kind of being a little more invested in the mink. And then, you know, my so my my like my record keeping and stuff, I was way more detailed about where I kept mink and it was like I caught thirty coon today and then the next day front came I caught 40 coon I didn't necessarily care what I was catching them on I kind of I kind of by that point had realized hey I got a got a good system here I got good attractions that work for coon but what do I have for mink um so my my whole focus in them first five years kind of shifted and then by 2007 I felt like my system kind of came together even though I caught less my system came together to where I felt like I was very confident in catching mink and catching raccoon, and I had a system that worked for both of them. So by like 2007, my record keeping probably became less of a focus. Yeah. Now, do you think, it's a question I've never really thought about, but do you think mink are more distinguishing of lures and baits than coon, or do you think they're about the same? Um. That's a real good question, and I, I'm not I'm not a Tim Swatsky, I'm not a Jill Schmidt. I, I, I've caught a few hundred mink in my career, versus guys like they like they've caught many hundred every trapping season. Um, so that would be a question. You know, I, I would love to ask Tim refer your question right to Tim Swatsky, yeah. but he's not on the phone. <laughs> right. so I would say for me personally. I think, I think the only difference between like pocket sets for coon and pocket sets for mink, you know, with, I mentioned Dave Pluger before with like just being able to identify coon, like without seeing any sign, picking out these awesome locations for coon. With mink, I sometimes feel like the greater majority of really good mink locations are like that. You just have to be able to recognize them. Yeah. Everybody can occasionally catch a mink here or there, but guys that catch a lot of mink just have a knack for knowing where a mink's going to be. And it's really difficult if you, I, I, I always find it interesting. Like I've, I've watched mink sitting in a deer stand. Uh, I spent a lot of time watching a female mink. I was trapping beaver in the spring one year late it was a nuisance job and there was a mama mink had a litter in an old like the farmer had ripped out a beaver dam the beaver rebuilt it but you had all these sticks and debris and mama mink had a litter somewhere in there and i can remember hearing the mink pups kind of squealing but i would watch her she'd be out hunting all almost every day i would see her uh in this creek and i got to watching her in the way she just ran up and down the creek and did things Mm -hmm. and it's hard to explain but but once i saw that um it it always kind of stuck with me and it kind of helps you pick out mink spots and again it's one of them things like 
a mink is not necessarily a water animal. They don't have to be in the water. And especially when it gets cold, you have to look for spots where they're going to be forced into the water to work your set. And then you have to make a set in such a way that when the mink is forced to the water, they're forced to step on the trap pan. And that's maybe oversimplifying it, but if you don't kind of, it takes some time to kind of develop that second nature um, because otherwise, just making pocket sets to catch a raccoon, I would say there's a lot of pocket sets every year where a mink walks down the bank and sticks his head in the pocket from the top and moves out and doesn't get caught. So I would say that, that you know, the mink's attraction to a bait or, or, or a lure is a mink harder to, to lure or attract than a coon? I don't necessarily think so. But I think the nature of the mink makes them harder to catch when they when they are attracted to something. If that makes sense. Yeah, that that does make sense. So uh, so it, it, a lot of it has to do with the the design of the set and the location of the set because you could have the yeah. best lure in the world, and a mink could go over and investigate it and not get caught. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and the nature of the animal too. I I don't know if. That, that may be one difference too. I, I think if a coon is interested in something, he's a much, they're, a raccoon is a, they're a much more curious animal to where they'll sit there and blunder around and blunder around. Whereas a mink, I don't know that they're going to be interested as long. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if they stick their head in from over the top and they get a good whiff of the odor, they may very well move along right then and they don't feel the need to like dig around in there to see if they can get closer. Whereas a raccoon, I think they're going to work the set a little more aggressively. And as they're standing there, you know, they're moving their feet around a lot, gives you a lot more chance of catching them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess another thing that may or may not be related is Mr. Coon is trying to tank up for hibernation. Um, where yeah. the mink is just constantly feeding all year round. Yeah, yeah, and and that's it exactly. I I think you know mink have to really, you know, conserve their energy because because a mink has to make a living when it's negative twenty, whereas yeah. a raccoon is sleeping in a log. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's they're just the makeup of the animal is totally different for sure. Yeah. Um. So what were the fur prices doing around that time? Sounds like coon must have been okay. Uh, say again, I'm sorry. Uh, fur prices. Fur prices. Um, they kind of tanked. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not a good time 90, to be a longliner? <laughs> yeah, 97 was pretty good. Um, 98, the, the Russia's economy collapsed, and coon went from like $20 to, I should back up here. In 97, I think I shipped those coon to NAFA, and I sold a lot for like 27.50 was my top end. I think I averaged like 19 to 21 dollars, roughly somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. By 98, uh, the Russian economy had fallen apart, and naturally, when that happens, the raccoon market crashes. That year, I sold a lot of raccoons for eight dollars. Um, by 2001. I think it started to rebound a little bit. And then, of course, like when I came back in 2007, things had, had 
there'd been a major upswing to where, you know, we had $40 coon running around. But in 2001, when I caught the 416, I think I probably averaged in the 12 to $14 range. Mink were about the same, uh, maybe slight a few dollars more for the mink. Yeah. Doesn't it always I, seem I, to be that way when, when you make the good catches, the prices are low? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that that is that that is there's a lot to be said for that. That's for sure. Um, I I have timed uh, I have timed some things right in my trapping career to where, you know, I was able to make a decent catch of like I think of a couple years in Mississippi where I caught some otter and they sold for two hundred twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. It was great. But I've joked different times. People say, well, where do you sell your fur? And I would say, wherever I can get the least for it. <laughs> it, just, it just seemed like that's where it always, where, 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 how it always just worked out was, was I caught a lot of something and, and the market fell apart. And, and along the lines, I, it, I, it, the two years I trapped Alabama, the first show I was down there, I actually, I mentioned Dave Gerlock earlier. He was, he, he had come to me and like, Hey, if you got any work, I could really use some extra cash. I'm like, Dave, I pay you $5 to flush and stretch beaver. That was the, I offered. And he said that was the number I, he had in mind. So I hired him to put up beaver for me. And I sat here and I flushed beaver and beaver. And I had like 140 beaver. I took them to Grenwald's and I averaged, I don't know, like 16 bucks or so for him, something like that. And they told me, they're like, you know, we would have paid you like 14 if you just brought them to us green. <laughs> oh, my, I wasted a lot of labor. And, I, and so so then, you know, the next year I had that in my head. It's like, I am not flushing beer and stretching them for $2 when I can sell them green. So I froze all, all my beer. And I brought them over to Grunwald's. And a guy said well what what are these beaver going to cost me i said well guy you told me last year i said i'd like to get twelve dollars he said kyle a beaver market's just not the same or i said i'd like to get eleven dollars because i was you know the five dollars off and i knew the market was a little less and he said well he said here's what i'll do we're gonna look they were all froze i i folded them in half and froze them that's how they like them he said the smalls and the ones that are rubbed or got bite marks, I'll give you $5 for. The other ones can be 11 And I said, okay. And they went through them all and they paid me. And I, when I was down in Alabama, I, I trapped with, not every day, but a lot of the days Jackie Malone rode with. And so I sold all them beaver to Grunwald's. And I emailed Jackie and told them, you know, we'd, at the time, Jackie and I email back and forth every day, and I told Jackie what I got for him, and he said, "Oh, by God!" He said, "I took every one of them back with me," and Anna, he's like, "I think you got took, but it ain't none of my business and stuff like that." <laughs> the following week, like I, when I sold them beaver, it was like the first of March or so, and and like the following week was a NAFA sale, and I, I, my overall average ended up being like eight fifty or so on them green beaver. That very next week, the NAFA sale, they sold like 40% of the beaver and the average like $7. Wow. And Jackie said, by God, he said, I wouldn't ever sell my fur anywhere else but the gun <laughs> You were a genius. So, so, so in that instance, in that instance, I felt like I, I shouldn't, 
I have timed things right like that where I felt like I was really fortunate. And that's like, like now I, I generally sell almost everything to Grenwalds because I found that I, for the most part, I always was getting getting the best value and a good, fair, whatever the market was, Yeah, they were paying me. Um, and that was, that story is what basically, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, it was something that happened that I felt like, you know, I, I made the right decision. And I also felt like they were very honest with me, um, with what the market was and what they could do. And it, it, it won me over. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, just, it's another good example of, uh, probably putting all your eggs in one basket is not the best thing. Um, unless you're, right. unless exactly. you're a gambler. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just, uh, I mean, that's a, a, a tough, a tough, part about state hopping too is is you know if you're a lot of us have uh, a lot of a lot of trappers use country fur buyers um and sell the country fur buyers but if you go two thousand miles away and trap somewhere else you don't have that person there that you can you can sell fur to and it, and it forces you to either which you know fur handling out of state i mean I know we were planning to talk about state hopping, and here we are an hour, and we haven't even touched. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we, we're one state down, seven to go. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's something you know. That's uh, you know, fur handling when you're a long ways away. It 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 can be a real challenge, and and you know, you're outside of your comfort zone. You know, where I live here, I'm fortunate in that. If this year, if I was going to long line Iowa, and I ran out of freezer space. I can be a Grunwald in 30 minutes and get yeah. a really good price for, for coon at any stage of processing, whether I bought them coon on the carcass or just skinned or stretched and dried, they're going to pay me a good price at any stage of the processing. And I don't have to worry about, Oh, I'm out of freezers or, or if a freezer was to go out. Um, or I could just probably, uh, arrange it to where I could just bring them the coon every other day and never run a freezer. Um, you know, there, there's so many factors that, that, that can be a big challenge, you know, it, not just on a state hopping adventure, but at home too is, is the fur handling aspect. Of oh it. yeah. Especially I, if, I, I was talking it, with a guy that, that you goes long lining out of state. He's from Maine and he, he's been going over to South Dakota and Wyoming. He said that, the biggest challenge for him is not finding the area to trap. It's not finding the animals. It's finding a good place to stay and a place to put up and store fur. Exactly. Those are the two biggest challenges of, of any state hopping. I would say that's the common ground, whether, whether it be Maine, New Mexico, Alabama, wherever you want to go, you can almost always find places to trap. Um, or if you're going to the West where there's, it seems like endless amounts of BLM and state ground, you can always go start trapping on public land and, and get a foothold on the trap line. And more than likely, if you go to New Mexico and you start trapping on public land, you're probably going to start running into ranchers that with open arms will welcome yes. you to come trap. Very, no that was a very common, very common thing with several people I've talked to that have trapped yeah. in New Mexico. I, when I was trapping beaver in Alabama, I, in Mississippi, in places in the Southeast, if they know you're a beaver trapper, there is no way 
that you could get to all of the places people want you to trap. I mean, you yeah. could spend a lifetime in some of them places, and you'd have to tell people, no, sorry, I, I can't get to that. And while you're um, doing that, just, there's more people that are seeking you out because they heard exactly. at the coffee shop that you're yeah. a trapper. And, but a lot of those people, you know, to go there and do that, that's exactly it. Where do you stay? And then, you know, where do you put up fur? I mean, you could always... You know, a lot of, depending on where you are, you could stay in a hotel, but that get, could be a big expense. I mean, I, if you can, a lot of, I know a lot of guys, and I, I think of, I know some people that go out west to hunt too, and if you can find places that like have extended stay type deals, um, you know, sometimes, you know, if you could pay $300 to stay in a room for, for three weeks, that is, you know, that's, you can make that work. Yeah. Now, if you're paying $75 a night, there is no way you could go anywhere and afford to trap. No. Um, not to mention a lot of places, you know, if, if you're going to an area, you know, there are a lot of places where hotels and motels cater to sportsmen. So they know that if, if, if they've got deer hunters, they know they need to have freezers available or, or, plugins available for people to store their meat mm-hmm. and naturally that works out because when you're trapping it's probably not going to be deer season and those motels and hotels that cater to the outdoorsmen sometimes they're more than happy to say yeah you can rent a room and yeah you can plug your freezer in or or you know park your trailer skin here you know they're Finding them places is is the key to success. Once you have that place, you can always find the animals. I mean, I agree 100% with that. Yeah. All right. Well, Kyle, we've been over an hour on Iowa. What do you say we, we uh, <laughs> find another find a time to pick this up and and get into Mississippi and then move on down the road? Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great. I really appreciate having you on, and and I hope we can. Uh, we can continue to talk about all the different places you trapped and get a little more insight there. Sounds great. I really appreciate you having me. All right. Well, take care, Kyle, and we'll catch you next time. Okay. Thanks, Jeremiah. Bye.